All right, I'm, I'm, I'm in the second week of emphasizing why we study the Bible. Uh, and the, the principal issue we're going to uh, lay out today is that the Bible is the witness to Jesus Christ. And I'm using the divinity sermon, uh, which theologians refer to it as, uh, in which Jesus lays out his divinity as enunciated by God and, and the prophets and the scripture. And that is found... Uh, in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, uh, verses 37 to 47. And I'm going to read it. And I want to welcome our uh, internet audience. And we are speaking now in John, chapter 5, verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form. Nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures, because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me, but since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Wow, Jesus. Amazing statement as he reaches out to the Pharisees and condemns them. Uh, and he condemns them because they, they cite the scriptures, they lived by the scriptures, and yet they never saw that Jesus was the very essence of the scriptures. And this is why we study the Bible, uh, because we see Christ's directive here in which he's laying it out very clearly that the Bible is written in order to extol Jesus Christ. We study the Bible because the Bible points to Jesus. All right, We're not studying the Bible because we're getting a history education or we're learning about how men act. All of that is interesting, but the central purpose of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it. Uh, and that's why we study the Bible. That's what this is all about. That's why we gather here every week. Uh, and I hope that you give this message of hope to other people. And so here he is speaking to a Jewish audience, a Jewish audience that took pride in the fact that they were experts in the Scripture. And yet, as he said here, the Scriptures weren't going to save you. You could read the Bible from morning to night if you didn't understand the central import of the Bible was Jesus Christ. Him alone, on the cross, dying for your sins as the substitutionary sacrifice. If you didn't understand that, you really were missing the entire point. And so in this, in this chapter, uh, Jesus discusses several witnesses uh, to his uh, divinity. But in verses 37 to 47, I believe he emphasizes the single most important aspect of his divinity, and that is the importance of the Scriptures, the evidence of the scriptures, the very word of God. Uh, and so 
It's not, we study the Bible not to see how God deals with man, all right? We study the Bible to see how God gave us Jesus Christ, and that the only way we can, can be saved is by accepting Jesus Christ. Look, there's, make no mistake about it, and, and so many people make this mistake, good people, uh, and that is, they'll say to us, you know, what is it about you Christians? You know, why, why are you so self-focused and self-centered? It's like only your way is the way that counts. You don't recognize that there are many good people, many, many moral people in the world. You don't recognize that. Uh, and, and, you, and, and your failure to recognize that, uh, you become biased. Well, you've got to put that argument to rest right up front. And the reason you put it to rest is you say, look, it's not me. It's not my opinion. I'm giving you the word of God. What, what God himself said, and Jesus made it very clear in John 14, there's only one way to the Father, through me, period. End of discussion. One way to the Father, only through me. And so if you really understand this and know that that's what God said, how can you have your own personal philosophy? Because you think your little philosophy uh, is a, a moral way to get to God. It is not a moral way to get to God. It's, it's the devil use, confusing your mind and taking you off the cross. The devil doesn't want you to focus to, on, on the cross. The devil would have no problem with you reading a lot of good books, a lot of moral books. Go ahead, read on, on religious philosophy. All that's good stuff. Just don't talk about Jesus. You understand? And Jesus is the central aspect of the Bible in every way. Jesus alone is where it's at. And so that's what this point of this, of this lesson is today. Uh, and so when, when Jesus speaks about the witness of the Bible to himself, he is stressing two points in this message. Two points. The first is the divine origin of the Scriptures. The second is that the primary purpose of the Scriptures is to point to him. Um, he is speaking about the first of these, the divine origin of the Scriptures, uh, when he says to them in verses 37 to, to 38, and the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his voice or will, for nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Now, how can God testify about Jesus? It's this book, this book. And so understand something. The book is written by men but they were men inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's as if the pen is being carried along the paper by the will of God through the Holy Spirit. You understand? And when they speak, even though it's coming out of their mouth, it is the Holy Spirit that is inspiring the words. And how do you know it? You know it because in your heart when you hear it, you go, amen. You have the Holy Spirit within you. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And that's the litmus test of everything that you hear here and any place else about Jesus. And when you hear it, in your heart, here's what you should be feeling. Amen. Amen. He's right. I know it. I'm convicted. That's why so many of you say when you get up out of here after Monday that you're under conviction. You're under conviction not because of a man. You're under conviction because God spoke to your heart today. You understand? That's what this is about, God speaking to you about what you need today. Look, I don't know your needs. I don't know your life. I don't know what you're going through, but he does. He does. In fact, in many ways, it's better that I don't know. I don't know. My father used to, after every service, somebody would come up to him and say, who told you about that issue? 
I was suffering with. My father would say, I don't know anything. I didn't know that. I didn't know what you were dealing with. You know, people think that, the, that other people in the congregation are like ratting them out. You know what I mean? <laughs> Nobody's doing that. Everybody's got their own issues. All right? And the pastor's up there just trying to obey God and deliver the message, and the Holy Spirit indicts. And that's what the Bible is about. The Bible does that, and Jesus has said that. So we recognize, of course, even as we refer to the divine origin of the Scriptures, uh, that, in, that in one sense, all of the Bible was, writ was written by men. We understand that. Uh, they did the actual writing. But if you uh, understand what the, how the Holy Spirit works, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. How about that? Peter telling you that. It never, prophecy never came from the heart of man. No man could come up with a prophecy, and we've studied the prophecies uh, here, and we understand that. David, one of the great prophets, none of that came out of David's mind or his opinion, but it came through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as this entire book is written by the Holy Spirit. Every word in this book is written by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so the divinity sermon underscores why we study the Bible, because the Bible is the inspired word of God that speaks to us about Jesus Christ. The only way we truly can understand Jesus Christ and understand the will of God about Jesus is through the Bible, with the help of the Holy Spirit. And so the result of all of this, the result of this is the revelation of God. Uh, and it's the same way that the Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary. Uh, and uh, she conceived Jesus in her womb because the Holy Spirit came upon her. And you believe that. We believe that. All right? We understand that the Bible told us that the Virgin would conceive, uh, and that would be the Messiah. It was the Holy Spirit coming upon her, the very Spirit of God. In the same way, this book has been written by men who the Holy Spirit came upon. Uh, and as long as man lifts it up and glorifies God, not glorifying himself, but lays it before the throne of God, God will use men uh, to deliver the word. But whenever somebody gets a little bit too full of themselves uh, and starts to believe that they, their talents, their gifts are, are what's carrying the kingdom of God, then you know what? God can pull the plug in a second. God can pull the plug in a second. We are only effective, and not only me, but you. You're only effective as you speak to people and in the ministry that God has given you as you rely on the Holy Spirit. So let's understand this. So Jesus becomes the subject of the Old Testament in two ways. First, by fitting in with the general themes of redemption and salvation of the, of the Old Testament. Secondly, by fulfilling specific prophecies that are found throughout the Bible, from Genesis through Revelation. Uh, and the Old Testament theme uh, about Jesus Christ is best summarized in David's Psalm of Repentance. Turn to Psalm 51. And you know, this is a psalm that's written after David committed adultery uh, and he is heartbroken, um, and uh, the child of that union uh, has died. 
Uh, and now you recognize this is a broken man who was greatly used by God, but God is speaking to us today. This is a psalm of repentance. God is telling us, this is what you need. You have to repent. You want to you have salvation? You, you want to you have your sins forgiven you? You need to honestly repent. Look at this psalm. Uh, this is written now, effectively a thousand years before Christ will be born. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great tra- compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And let's understand something. Those of us who have studied Scripture understand that when Jesus died on the cross and, and, and that his sin was a propitiation to God for our sin, and he reconciled the human race to God by believing in him, what it meant was that all the things that you had done before in your life were wiped away. They were forgiven. There is no past as a Christian. I can't emphasize this enough. You need to understand this, that that when you're with people who will say to you, you know, I remember what you used to do. I remember the kind of guy you were. I saw you, and now you're doing this, and now you're a Bible teacher, and now you're going to Bible class. You know, you, that's not God that's speaking that. That's Satan that's speaking that. That's evil, because there is no past. Jesus paid for your past on the cross. All right, and so David is praying to God to wipe out the sins, and God would answer that prayer with David, but he answers the prayer for everybody now with Jesus Christ. And David recognized the need for a Savior. Uh, Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And here's the thing. If you were a Jew, you could only do that once a year on the Day of Atonement. And if you have any question about how profound the Day of Atonement is, when you get home today, read Leviticus 16. All right? Your head will blow up. It's what God demanded the Jews to do on that one day in order to atone for their sins and recognize that it was all done paid for in full by Jesus on the, Christ, on the cross. Verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Here's a recognition of this man, that, that the sin of adultery was a sin against God. A sin against God. All right? Uh, yes, uh, he had denied his wife her rights. Yes, he had sinned against his wife, but the principal sin is against God the Father. See, this is, this, is a, a, this is God speaking to us today about the nature of sin. Sin violates the will of God. You are impugning God with sin. When you sin, you are basically willfully cutting yourself off from a relationship with God. That is why Jesus reconciled you forever. He allowed you to continue to have that relationship with God because of his death on the cross. That's what reconciliation means. You don't have a past when it comes to God. Your sins are as far removed from the past as the east is from the west. Uh, and this is, a, this is something that you have to drill down and understand this. And so as we read this, uh, we're just overwhelmed. Verse 6, surely you desire truth In the inner parts, you teach me wisdom in the innermost place. Uh, Then verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. 
Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. That can only be done with Jesus Christ. You understand? That, that, that without Jesus, you always reflect on your sins. You always reflect on what you did. You're burdened by your past. But you know what now? I'm not burdened by my past. I know where my past is and God has buried it. As far as God is concerned, that doesn't exist. That part of John is dead. The only thing that matters now is today and tomorrow, how I'm going to be serving him in every possible way. Listen, I come across people all the time. They'll look at me and they'll see me. They haven't seen me in 20 years and go, you, I remember you from court. Oh, man, you were a rough guy in court. You? You're a Bible teacher? It's like you're staggered that some God could do something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's the power of God. That's not me. That's him. All right? And when people ask me, uh, what do you do for, for a living or what have you done with your life? I never re reference anymore that I was a lawyer. I say I'm a Bible teacher. I'm a Bible teacher. You know why? Because that part of my life has been closed off. It's done. This is what God has called me to do. And I hope the same thing resonates with you. I hope he resonates with you. That's what God wants you to understand. And so you see this in this prayer. Uh, and, and here he says, hide your, verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Yes, that's right, David, and Jesus did it. Create in me a pure heart, verse 10, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. The only one who could do that is Jesus Christ, creating a new heart through the Holy Spirit, uh, because that's what we need, all right? Because otherwise, the guilt of the sin is so profound and overwhelming, you can't pick yourself up. And let me say this to you guys. You guys are Christians. You've accepted Jesus Christ. If you dwell in the past, if you look at the mistakes that you've made, you will not be able to, to lead a triumphant Christian life. Can I get an amen on that? I mean, I want to say this very clearly. You cannot lead a triumphant Christian life if you are reflecting on what you did in the past. Close the book. Close the door. Jesus paid for it in full. And the problem is this, folks. If you don't live that way, then you're denying the death of Jesus on the cross. You're denying the death of Jesus on the cross. That's what, he, that's what his death was all about. Uh, and you recognize it. Create in me a pure heart. Do not cast me from your presence uh, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of salvation and grant me a willing spirit. You understand that this man recognized what repentance and forgiveness were all about. And that's what this, this lesson is about, understanding that God is pointing you through the scriptures a thousand years before Jesus is being born as the Messiah, that God is preparing the way in the prophetic prayer, showing that the divinity of Jesus is the only way ultimately, the only way ultimately to be saved. And so individual men and women need to turn to Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And I said this yesterday, and I want to reiterate it today because I think it's clear. The principal call on your life is to speak to people about Jesus Christ. I'm going to repeat that. The principal call on your life is to speak to people about Jesus Christ. And who are the first people you need to speak to? Your family. Your family. And I'm going to say this, 
and I want to make sure you hear it. Every single one of you needs to speak to your wife and to your children and to your grandchildren about who Jesus is. Now, I said that yesterday, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, you know, I've got a number of children, and I've never been able to speak to them about Jesus uh, because I feel like my life is, is not uh, aligned with God's will. And as I said to this dear woman, I said, nobody's life is fully aligned with God's will. We're all sinners. If you wait for yourself to stop sinning, the only way that's going to stop is when they put dirt on you. All right? So don't use that as an excuse. All right? You need, if you truly love your children, if you truly love your spouse, you need to speak to them about Jesus. And then I hear this, well, but you know, I'm going to jeopardize my relationship with them. If I speak to them about Jesus, I'll jeopardize my relationship with them. Do you honestly think, really, if you spoke to someone in love, I mean, let's, I hope you're speaking in love. And don't go like this. You know you're going to hell. I just want you to know. <laughs> I hope you like hot places because you're going to spend eternity in heat with rags. Somehow that doesn't seem like a loving message. You understand? And no wonder people are turned off by that. But instead, if you say to somebody, I love you more than anything in the world, and I want you to know that the central aspect of my life, the single reason why I'm kept alive, is that I have Jesus Christ as the centerpiece of my life. Everything I do, everything I hold, is, is based on Jesus in every way. And I want to talk to you about Jesus, because I want you to understand who Jesus is, because I believe that if you know who Jesus is, that you will embrace him as he embraces you, but he will not come unless you talk to him and accept him. When you talk to that person like that, no person would repudiate you. All right, Maybe they don't want to hear the message at that time, but they will never stop talking to you. They'll recognize that you love them and care for you. And so you need to ask God to give you wisdom. But this is the central aspect and call on your life, to speak about Jesus. It starts in your family, and then it resonates out uh, to your friends. Uh, and to your relationships in many other ways. All of this uh, becomes important. And now, here's the thing. In the Old Testament, it's very clear that God spoke to the patriarchs uh, about who Jesus would be and how their, their work would be carried on by someone else, Jesus himself. It leads to the second great Old Testament uh, theme, that is the existence of a God who acts in love to redeem sinners. The existence of a God who acts in love to redeem sinners. I want you to reflect back on the Garden of Eden. I was talking to one of the brothers about this before we started. The Garden of Eden. And here God has his creation. He has his creation, Adam and Eve. And he puts them in the Garden of Eden, which many theologians believe was a slice of heaven brought to this world in perfection. And in that, that creation of Adam and Eve, and he's made in his own image. All right, He's given them free will but he gives them instructions that they can stay there. They can have everything. They don't have to lift a hand. It's all available for them. He's given them all of this gift. Uh, but one thing, one thing only. That's it. One thing only. Do not touch this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Do not take anything from that tree. That's it. You know, and as I said yesterday, it's almost like when you go to a restaurant and they come out with a tray and a dish, they put it down before you, and they say, don't touch this, it's very hot. 
what's the first thing we do? How hot is it? <laughs> how, oh, yeah, that is hot. Oh, I just wanted to get a sense for how hot that was. And so it's the way you are created, the very <laughs> human DNA. You understand? He knew it. He created you. I said to a brother this morning, did God know at the time that he created us that we would fall in sin? Yes, he knew. Did he know that Lucifer, when he created Lucifer, that he would be the single force of evil? Yes, he knew, but he gave Lucifer, just like he gave us, free will. That is the nature of the love of God. Can you imagine loving some creation so much that as you create him, you give him the ability for him to shake his fist at you? Now, what would you do? Would you redeem him? Would you bankrupt heaven? I know what I'd do. I'd squash him. And I think what I would do would be similar to what you would do. All right? And yet you see God coming back into the Garden of Eden, and you would expect him to wipe Adam and Eve out. And instead, what does he do? He makes the first animal sacrifice. He slays two animals and takes the skin off those animals so that Adam and Eve can be clothed, so that they can be clothed and uh, because of their sin. That's the nature of God. And you can just imagine what Adam and Eve were like when they saw death for the first time. These two animals slain because their, their skin coverings needed to be covering their own sin. And you understand this. And so God spoke to Abraham. And that's how God is. God calls Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees and calls him to be the first of the chosen people. Turn to Genesis chapter 12. Verse 1, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. By the way, I want you to understand that that's God speaking to you today. Forget everything that you had in your past. I don't care what you did in your past. You have a new present and a new future. Leave it and go and follow me. All right? Go and follow me because I have work to do. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, he's the first chosen people. He's the first Jew. Is God speaking here about blessings that will come from the gener generic Jewish community? Yes, the Jewish community has blessed this world with their intellect and their talents. There's no question about it. But this is more specific. He is saying that there will be a specific blessing emanating from the root of the genealogical tree of Abraham, and that is Jesus Christ. I mean, you have to understand this. That is Jesus Christ doing this and coming down. Later on, uh, turn to Genesis chapter 22. And you see how God says, you follow me, I will bless you, I will protect you, I'll be with you, uh, and how profound that is. Let's look, Genesis chapter 22. Let's look uh, at verse 17. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. All nations will be blessed because of Jesus Christ. 
because the Messiah will come from the root of Abraham. And so you see this, the promised seed. Uh, and so years later, years later, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, understood this. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. There it is. The Word of God through the Scriptures speaking about Jesus. Here he is, Paul, telling you that when God spoke to Abraham 1,800 years before, that he was telling Abraham that Jesus Christ would come through him. And that's the blessings of God uh, being made evidently clear. Moses also spoke about the great one to come. Uh, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. And then jump ahead to verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command you. And that prophet is speaking, that he's speaking of is Jesus Christ. And so there you have Moses himself. Uh, the Jewish uh, icon that they lift up and they always extol Moses first. Moses, we are the chosen people. And yet Moses himself recognized that everything in the scripture was about Jesus Christ, that there would have to be a savior, that you couldn't go on year after year strictly with animal sacrifice. It's about Jesus. That's why we study the Bible. Every page speaks of it. Every chapter speaks of it. It's about Jesus Christ. And when you bow in submission and you pray, when you read the Bible, and God will give you this understanding. You'll see it. You'll understand it. And so the Psalms, David, one of the great prophets in the Bible, one of the great prophets of the Bible, a thousand years before, spoke clearly uh, about who uh, God would be, who God would send. Uh, and it's evident, as you understand this, turn to Acts chapter 4. Turn to Acts chapter 4. As, as Paul is going to speak about this, Verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. That was a thousand years before. Why? And now they're citing one of the Psalms, okay? Now they're citing uh, one of the Psalms. They're citing Psalm 2, uh, verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. His anointed one capitalized there uh, in, in the Psalms and recognizing, and they recognized it, that that was God speaking prophetically about what was to come, what would happen. Turn also to Acts chapter 2 while you're there. Understanding Scripture. And so the first century church understood that the Bible was the revealed Word of God. They understood it. 
They understood that the Bible spoke about Jesus. And so I'm going to prove it to you here. Look, look at Acts chapter 2, beginning with, with uh, verse 22. And this is Peter speaking right after the Pentecost. And the, uh, the Holy Spirit has come down uh, and has baptized uh, the, the church in the upper room. And people in the street, there are tens of thousands of Gentiles and Jews out in the street and they see the evidence of the Holy Spirit in the upper room. And now P Peter is going to speak to them about their Bible. About their Bible. Uh, and so beginning with verse 22, men of Israel, listen to this. It's as if he's here right now speaking. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. How's that for an indictment? But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, and now he's going to cite the psalm. All right? This is now written a thousand years before. I saw the Lord always, before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. That's Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. You will not let your Holy One be decayed, meaning you can put him in the ground, you can put him in a sepulcher, you can roll the stone in front of him, but they will not see his body be decayed. He will be resurrected and returned to life in a triumphant way. As you understand, that's what the scripture said. It's not a surprise. The Bible said it a thousand years before, and so you understand this, and you see it. Uh, and, and then you have the specific references, prophetic references in certain Psalms. Turn to Psalm 22. Again, Psalm 22, Psalm of David. Uh, and, and understanding how God, God speaks to our heart about what is to come. Psalm 22 is a prophetic view of uh, the crucifixion. Now, crucifixion hasn't been invented at this time. It wouldn't be invented for about another 600 years or so. 700 years. But you see here, this psalm speaks about Jesus uh, being crucified on the cross. Uh, and, and, and there's some verses here that are really astounding, beginning with verse 12. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Let me tell you something about the crucifixion. All right, the crucifixion would cause dislocation of your bones. And Jesus suffered dislocation of his bones. But not one bone would be broken. Not one bone would be broken. Why? Because it was a foreshadowing in the, in the Old Testament of the Passover lamb that Moses was told when you take the Passover sacrifice, do not break any of the bones. Now, why would God say that? 
that the Passover lamb had to be presented and none of the bones would be broken. Because 1,400 years later, he knew that his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would be on the, on the cross and that none of his bones would be broken, tying him back to the original sacrifice. Is this astounding to you? Is this astounding that this is what God has done for you and has, and has tied the scripture together? This is why we study the Bible and, and I, the water is pouring out of me. And you know that when they put that sword in the side of Jesus, it, uh, it gushed out water and blood. And so you see this. And this is an astounding, astounding psalm that I can count all my bones. His bones are not broken. In verse 18, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Stop. They divide my garments among them? You know what happened at the cross a thousand years later? that they would take the very garments that Jesus had and divide them up amongst themselves. But there was one garment, one cloak that was special. They couldn't divide that up, and so what did they do? They cast lots for it. Now imagine God speaking to you, to your heart, a thousand years before prophetically about what would happen with Jesus Christ on the cross. This is why I say, this is why we study the Bible. Uh, it's It's extraordinary. Uh, and so you understand that, uh, and you see it here. And, and in this psalm, we recognize that Jesus will be triumphant uh, and, and that his, his word, his impact on this world will last forever. Uh, and, and you see that in Psalm 22. And then, and then when you look also at Psalm 23, uh, you see them speaking uh, about the compassionate shepherd. Look, look at Psalm 23, and you'll see those words there. Uh, and you know this psalm. It's, a, very, it's a, a well-known psalm. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Look, you understand the nature of Jesus Christ? When you've accepted Christ, he walks with you. He's there with you. Yes, even when you go to the hospital and you're about to go through surgery, he's there in that operating room. You understand? Even when you get the diagnosis that seems like it's the end of this life, he's there sitting in the chair next to you. He's walking with you. His rod and his staff are comforting you. He's defending you. We have no idea, no idea how many times God has intervened in our lives to protect us. You know, you hear people give some incredible testimonies. I'm going to tell you there are more testimonies we haven't heard because people don't even recognize it was the will of God that they were protected. It's Jesus Christ standing there protecting you, the compassionate shepherd. Look, this is no normal shepherd. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Can I get an amen? amen? Understand that, yes, God, he still knows that you'll be with your enemies. You live in an evil world. You will walk in a world that's evil. Satan will want to destroy you and hurt you, but he will be with you. He will protect you. Nothing will happen to you that is not within the will of God. Why do I know that? Because Jesus said it, and it's written in this book. That's why we study the Bible. That's why we study the Bible. Every single day of your life, you need to open this book up and read it and understand it uh, and, and, and come to terms with it. And, and, and so it's, in, it's important that you, that you do this and that you really give yourself to serious study of the Bible. Look, this isn't about intellectual stimulation. 
It's about much more than this. And Jesus understood that all of the prophetic words in the Bibles were about him. He knew it. He knew it. He tried to get that across to his disciples. That is why he chastised Peter when Peter argued against Jesus' arrest. And let's turn to that so you see that and you get an understanding of why Jesus argued against Peter. Look at Matthew 26, verse 52. You know, that this, Peter, Peter drew his sword at the arrest and he chopped off the ear of the assistant to the high priest. Thank you, Peter. Uh, and he never quite got it while Jesus was alive. And look what Jesus says, 52. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? I want you to reflect on what, that, what he just said. Don't you understand that if I wanted to avoid this, all I have to do is make one small prayer to my father and 12 legions of angels, I believe that's something like 25 or 30,000, how's that, is that enough for you, will come down when you know that one angel killed 144,000 Assyrians in one night. That's one angel. What do you think 12,000 or 20,000 would do? They'd wipe out Jerusalem. But Jesus understood. He was constrained. He was constrained because he knew the scriptures. He knew that God had foreordained it, that every word in the scriptures were about him and about his mission, and that we would be reading it 2,000 years later, and that we would, even though Jesus is not here to speak to us, his words speak to us through the Holy Spirit. He's speaking to you today. He's affirming to you the nature of what he did on the cross. And now he's telling you, go out and tell the world. Go out and bring other people here. Go out and extend the, the, the mission of Christ in your family, and your friends, in every way. And that's why we study the scripture. That is why we study the Bible. Uh, and, and another example of Jesus understanding this is Luke 24. Turn to Luke 24. And I love this passage. This is one of my favorite passages in scripture. Luke 24. Uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, and, and it's so powerful. I want you to understand this. This is right after the crucifixion. This uh, Cleopas and another disciple are leaving Jerusalem brokenhearted, brokenhearted. Everything they had dreamed of, the Messiah was now smashed and gone. Their Jesus had died. They can't believe it, and their world has been crushed. And, and so uh, Jesus begins to speak to them, and and Jesus walks up to them, and they don't recognize Jesus. He kind of disguised himself. And as he walked up to them, he said to them, what are you discussing as you walk along? And they said that this walk is probably took about five or six uh, hours. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked them, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, Jesus said, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that if he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, and what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. So even though they had heard from the women and from other witnesses 
that the tomb was empty. They didn't really believe it. They didn't believe it. And then Jesus said to them, how foolish are you and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. There it is. How foolish of you that you have not read and studied and believed the scriptures, the word of God that speaks about me. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then he began uh, over a period of several hours to unfold the scriptures and give them probably the greatest Bible study teaching in the history of the world. Because he was an eyewitness. It was about him as he opened the Bible and went chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village in which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. For it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give, give to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Can you imagine what that had to be like? After he teaches them the Bible study, showing that everything in the scriptures pointed to him. 1,800 years, here is my son. Here is why I bankrupted heaven. It's all written here. And finally, after he does that, he sits there and in communion breaks the bread. And at the breaking of the bread, they recognize it's you. It's Jesus. You are alive. Every word that you said is true. Everything that God has spoken about, about you is true. The Bible is true. From Genesis to Revelation, not a word is false. You need to study it. That's why we study it, as we lead and understand how God speaks to us today about Jesus. Let's close. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for this word that you've given us today, this lesson about the scriptures, why we study the Bible. The principal reason is to point the way to your son. Lord, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that you've given him to us. I thank you that you've allowed us to be saved, Father. And I thank you that we can read every day your word about him affirming us in every way from David and the prophets right down through the disciples. Lord, I ask you that you give us the ability to continue to read, to have our minds opened, to understand through the Holy Spirit what you've said over these thousand years. Be with our men, protect them this week, and bring them back safely next week to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Apropos of what you, happened to your father with a member of the congregation talking to him.